Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. I am in the the laboratory, (laughs) the lab of the great musician, Catherine Joy. Thanks for having me. Thank you for for asking me to be part of this. Oh, this is so exciting. But you've got you've got drums and keyboards and mics and and this is, you know, an apartment. Do you uh, what do your neighbors say? They're absolutely fine with it. It's, it's interesting, actually, because when they found out I was a composer, they're like, well, the person who lived here previously was a piano tuner. So it's almost like the perfect, it's like the music apartment of the, of the building. And the building is just, it's a thriving little community. We have, we have parents with a newborn. We have little families with kids. We have a number of, of quite elderly people who everyone kind of keeps an eye out for. So it's, I, I love it. Right. Yeah. And my next door neighbors have two little chihuahuas that go off every time you walk past their door, which I love because they're hey trying you, to... Hey you, yeah, hey exactly. you, hey you, Yeah, exactly. Little yeah, guard dogs always know when people are around, oh, so, so it's fantastic. I wanted to keep this a secret from my audience, and although my audience is largely, uh, it's international, there are a huge number of Aussies on board. Excellent. Uh, so having heard Catherine, you can hear, <laughs> you know, the American accent, but you actually hail from... Uh, Hobart. Hobart, Tasmania. That's right. My accent is um, is definitely a hybrid and Australian notes come out if I'm talking about home or if I'm talking to an Australian or or just for any random reason. And then I can slip back into American really quickly. So it's, yeah, when I, when I came to the States, I was 19 and um, definitely sounded Australian and was was trying to fit in, I knew that I was going to be living here. I mean, it, it had always been my goal. And uh, I remember I was in a restaurant ordering burger and fries, and the waiter said to me, really? And I was like, yes, that's what I want. And he's like, no, you really talk like that? And I, I, I just kind of hit my limit at that point, and I was so sick of standing out and the conversation always being about Australia and I just felt like I wasn't fitting in Mm -hmm. and I was a teenager yeah so and I was also doing a lot of phone work at the time so I was like screw it I'm just gonna embrace the American accent but honestly as I've grown up and kind of fallen back in love with the fact that I am an Australian living in America I've tried to keep 
some aspects of the accent. But it's just, it's, it's so interesting how accent plays so much a part of your identity, I guess, especially when you're younger. And then when you get older, the kind of the opposite happens. And then you have Australians giving you a hard time because you don't sound Australian. Yeah. And so it's the whole, the accent thing alone has been an interesting aspect of my, of my time here in the States. And I've been here now for 20 years. I do this work for the, tri the um, Triple M network in Australia um, as a promo voice. And they say to me, like, Triple M. They say, <laughs> I say oh, my God, I show you. Um, they say, I sound more Aussie now that I'm here than I've ever sounded before. But to Americans, I sound like a Brit. And my mother right. was English. And I suppose I've always, you know, sounded a little bit... Um, just a little bit different as an Aussie, but anyway. Um, I, I would call it, I call it the educated Australian. The educated Australian? Yeah. So, so what happened, I was at a luncheon the other day and the, the American woman that I was having lunch with, she kept repeating words that I was saying. So I said to the, to the waiter, um, could I have another napkin, please? And she went, napkin, please. And, and she, but she was doing it with everything, like, oh, it was so hot yesterday. Hot yesterday. And I thought, if she does it one more time, I'm going to scream. But I couldn't because that's not what you do. It's, but that's what she was hearing. So I suppose, you know. It's, it's so crazy. One, it's so crazy to me that people do that. Yeah. And it's funny because I don't know if you remember the film Love, Love Actually. Yes. But they actually have a scene where that happens. And in that scene, it's kind of adorable. But it's also just, I love it because it's totally the experience when you come here and you sound different. The people just literally parrot words back to you. And it's challenging with a number of people just to have a normal conversation. <laughs> and you're like, can we just talk about what we did today. But we're like freaks. It's like yeah. we are kangaroos that have walked into their ranch. Yeah. And they can't help that. They can't help themselves. I have had to learn to embrace it, but yeah. it has been weird. And of course, it comes from a, a place of, you know, wonder. And, you know, it's, they're not trying to be horrible people, but, you know, depending on the day. Yeah. I know. Really it can be really frustrating. So, so you're 19 when you come here. Yeah. So let's go back because the kind of training that you will have had to have had to get you to this point um, as as a composer and actually, you know what? First off, tell me what a composer is. That's a, um, that's a great question. What the kind of composer I am is primarily for film and media, although I've done concert works as well and I love the opportunity to do that. Um, and I've also worked in jazz and I've worked in rock, but primarily my day to day right now is working with picture, um, whether it be, you know, a film or with video games. Usually you're also working to exported picture, but the process is slightly different because you're working with loops as opposed to film where you're working with a narrative that has like a, you know, a scene with a starting point and an ending point and you're scoring that story. So you're so I'm writing music to picture. Um, the music that I'm writing is to fulfill the vision of the director or the producer or the developer. And a major reason why I am in this, in this industry is because I was hungry for that collaboration. I didn't want to be primarily a concert composer where it was just me writing something that came out of me. I wanted to be part of a team. I wanted there to be a vision that was greater than my musical idea. 
I don't know, I, I want to, I love the fact that my music is always serving another purpose. It's just, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a people person and as a musician my entire life, the life of a musician where you're in a room by yourself playing, practicing, was just such a struggle for me and I fought against it my entire young life. And when I found out about film and media composition, which was in my early, the beginning of my 30s, the thing that really struck me was, you know, a big part of the job is hustling to get the gig and connecting with people. And then in order to write music that works, you have to have conversations with the director and you have to connect with the rest of the team. And it's like every step of the way is collaboration. And yes, there's definitely a lot of hours where I'm here alone working, but that's after all this collaboration. So by the time I get to the point where I'm sitting alone, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to be alone. I'm ready to focus on the music. And I know that, you know, I'm still part of a greater thing. So it feels a lot less lonely than it ever did in the practice room. I have exactly that same thing with writing. Gosh, it was interesting hearing you say that. It's, I came here to collaborate. Yes. Totally understand what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. So at what point, I mean, as an actor, I get, I get called in to audition. Um, the, the, the script has been written. Um, we're in production. They've, mm. got, they've got the finance. They've, they've got, you know, it's, it's at that stage where mm. I, I, think, I think we understand where the actor comes in. Yeah. But at what point does the composer get brought yeah. in? Yeah, and that's a great question because it really could be any point. I mean, the, the projects I'm working on now are with many of which are with people I've collaborated for years. You know, I'm still working with a director that was like in the first networking event I ever went to in Seattle. One of the first people I walked up to was like, hi, I'm a composer and I've never actually scored a film, but I want to and can we talk? And I'm still working with that director. So with those more, um, with those relationships, I'm often brought in at the script phase. Okay. And sometimes I'm even brought in when they're like, we have this cool concept for a film and, and it might be two years later when we're actually working on it, when we're actually in post-production and I can write a note of music. Um, and then when it's, when it's new relationships where you have met someone at a networking event or they heard your music through some platform and reached out to you, it, again, it might be in script. It might be, you know, we have a fully edited film. Can you come in and score it? And that's... That's the kind of traditional point usually when a composer is brought in. The film is either in edit or, if you're lucky, is locked. And then, then it's just go, go, go. Right. The cool thing about being brought in early and you know, composers are constantly encouraging um, filmmakers to do this is when you, when you come in early, then you have time to be with the project. You have time to get to know the team. You have time to really understand the vision of the directors. If you can spend a few days on set, that's amazing because you get to really start to feel it. Yes. And then when you are in post and everyone's out of time and out of money, <laughs> you, you can be a lot quicker because you've had time to develop the musical concepts that are required for the project. Do you sit and watch something and, and go note by note? Yeah, I sit, often I sit and watch. The way I like to do it is I sit and watch something or I watch it a few times and then I, you know, I have time away from it. I can think about it. And then when I come back to do it, I often, I like to have something already in my head, something I can hear. Okay. So it's, 
it's great and this is something I'm trying to develop more and more and it's really challenging but trying to compose in my head as opposed to composing on the piano or another instrument when I compose in my head I can hear anything right I can use my imagination I'm not influenced by an instrument I'm sitting with right and then so I and if the more I can develop concepts here and really hear them and kind of play them back in my head or hum them into a recording device then when I sit down with picture I, I can I can go and it's also a more efficient way to work and you know usually a composer um, who's who's working full-time is working on four projects at a time or yes. at least two so you know every every moment you're sitting down and working like the more efficiently you can have a workflow the better so I was a comedian and then a storyteller and I would get up on stage and just do stream of consciousness stuff and people went, oh my God, you're so funny, you should write a book. <laughs> and I would sit down to write said book and, and I type at 120 words a minute, so that's not the problem. It wasn't right. an unfamiliarity with the keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, it was like it was a dark and stormy night in the graveyard. The words became turgid yeah. and I lost my humour. Yeah. So I totally get that there would be not the lack of familiarity with your keyboard, right. but to create something in your head would be so freeing to yeah. be able to do that. And there's so many, like... We, you, there's, there's definitely musical things that you can fall back to and tropes you can fall into and, and certain things work and it's always this balance of, you know, the scene really calls for this, it works, the, the music does this thing that the scene needs, so it's, it's okay, but also, God, we've heard that so many times before, what musically can I do that supports going with picture that I haven't done before or no one has done before that's hard to do. There's mm. a lot of music has been created over the last couple of centuries. But what, you know, how can I push myself? How can I not be lazy and create something but still also serve picture? And and that's the, that's the other kind of piece of this puzzle that you always have to come back to is you can't make things complicated just for the sake of complication or different for the sake of being different has to work with picture. So how do you have that balance of, of telling a new musical story, but still doing what is needed for the audience to have the experience that the director wants them to have? To have that, um, what do you call it? It's not synchronicity, but it's that, that when everything fits together. Yeah. yeah. It's like making a cake. Yeah and putting all the ingredients together in the right order, using the right bowl and the right spoon. Right. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really challenging. And it's, you know, and sometimes the most simplest thing is required. And sometimes that thing that we've all heard is required. And that's when you have to let go of your ego too. And, and or sometimes the director wants something that we have all heard before, mm. but that's what they want. Mm. And then it's your job to, to do that because you're a media composer, you yes. know? And if you need to do something crazy and wacky that no one's heard, then do a concert piece or, or find a director that wants that or produce your own film, you know? But it's when, when people complain about a score or, you know, or like, this composer, like Hans Zimmer, is, is, is the composer that every composer likes to rag on 
because he does have a very specific sound and there is similarities between these scores and blah, blah, blah. It's like he gets hired to do that. Because they know they're going to get Because they know they're going to get that. Mm -hmm. And he does it really well. And he makes the directors happy and the audiences love it. So I get if musically it's not what you're looking for, especially as a, you know, a composer nerd or a mm. music nerd. But that's his job. Yes. <laughs> and he's doing it really well. Yeah. And I was thinking, coming to this, because I have no, I, 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 <laughs> I play the procrastinator. <laughs> that's my <laughs> instrument of choice. <laughs> you play it so well. I do. <laughs> I am a pro. I've had years of practice. Years of practice. Um, uh, so no musical knowledge. So me trying to describe music is like taking my car in to have it fixed. I, you know, I say it goes badoing, 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 but <laughs> and that's, you know, kind of it. But can I just say, yes, for all the directors listening out there who who are also intimidated about talking about music, I mean, this that's what we want our directors to say. Like we don't want directors who try and use music terms. Please don't do that ever. Like we want to be like it. We I want to feel this. Like I like this sound. And like that's it what needs I was to be this to. color. Yeah. Right. To ask you, what's the what's the funniest or the best thing that a, a director has ever said to you that comes to mind that fueled something that you created? That's a really good question. What is, what is the best thing? I mean, I, I just did a project recently where they wanted me to create a lullaby that actually turns into a, a so we, we think the character is singing a lullaby but then we find out later in the film that she's actually casting a spell so it, that so the the musical concept had to have this transformation but it had to be like the same thing throughout right so how do you create a lullaby that's super dark and then once you hear it kind of in its fully realized form sounds like super disturbing did, and do you, what do you call it? Do you call it a lyric or a libretto? What do you call it when you're, if you write the, the words for the, for the film as well? Yeah, it would, you... be, it would be lyrics. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So did you create, the, would you create well, that for the film? Or it was, was, the it was interesting that? actually because they, they had not asked for words. They, they just expected the, the singer to, to hum or to vocalize. And I'm like, I'm like, that's, that's cool, but I, but I, but then I, I went to them and I said, for this particular project, I think it would be cool if there were specific words or sounds, you know, not in English, but it, it when when someone's singing, it's often easier to have a specific vehicle, to like a specific thing to do with your voice, mm -hmm. you know, it it can it it, it can positively control the music creating process. Mm -hmm. So, and I said, you know, and my, um, a guy I work with who, who works a lot as my assistant, but he's also a, a great com a composer and a songwriter and everything in his own right. One of his kind of superpowers is creating, you know, alien languages or not real languages. And he's done this for D&D games. He's done this for video games. He's done it for movies where they need an, an alien language. Right. So I sent him my melody and then he created a language to go with it. And it was such a, and again, this goes back to collaboration. Yeah. This whole thing, this collaboration between the two of us 
elevated everything. And then I found out a bit more about his process, which is that he actually wrote words in English that fit the storyline of the project. And then he decided after looking at the art that the directors had sent for the project, that it was, it was the art seemed very Nordic inspired. So then he created a language that was Nordic inspired. He researched that and then created the language and then loosely related it to the English words he created. So there was this, again, this cre this depth that was created from the whole process. And, and then it worked so beautifully with the melody I had created. And it was just like a super fun, creative collaboration that just brought me massive amounts of joy. Yeah. <laughs> this is Take Fountain with Ella James. So let's go back to, I told you this would be more of a conversation than an interview. That was <laughs> totally fine. fine. Um, We're just going to um, go down the rabbit hole for a while. I love it. We are going to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So, so what was it that took 19-year-old Catherine, at what point in your career did you think, I want to be a composer or that I want to work with music? Give me that yeah, story. Absolutely. I mean, the thing I love about my story is it was a massively convoluted journey. And I love to tell it because I feel like where somehow we get this expectation that we're going to know what we want and then we're just going to do it. And it does not happen that way. <laughs> I mean, what I've known my entire life is I've just known that I'm going to somehow live in America. I don't remember not knowing that. Um, I don't know when it came about. And then music was always my path. Um, my, I have two siblings. My mom is a concert pianist and the, the, just the, the consummate performer and musician. And we look, the sim we look similar, both, both our names are Joy. She's Rosalind Joy, I'm Catherine Joy. And I was just always kind of her mini-me. But the challenge there was that she is a consummate performer. She loves to perform, she loves to do things from memory. I could perform well as a singer and as a violinist, which was the two instruments that I trained on. But I knew I didn't have her performance thing. Like I could see that she and other great performers got something out of this that I wasn't getting. And so for my entire young life, I knew I was doing music, which was what I was supposed to do, but I didn't fit. And it just, oh, I always felt like a square peg in a round hole. And I'm like, what is wrong here. So I was like, maybe it's the page. Maybe it's being told to do things, perform things on the page. So then I went into jazz. I started singing jazz, improvising, felt better to me, felt better, still didn't fit. And there was still something wrong. And then when I, I came to the States, I eventually um, was able to study jazz and I was studying jazz singing. And I was like, these songs, I can't bring anything to this that that Ella Fitzgerald or Anita O'Day have, have not already done. Like, I can't add anything here. I don't even relate to these songs. So I started writing songs. And I was like, writing, this is, this is something. And then I just started composing music for big band. I started getting away from the voice and just like focusing on all the instruments. And I'd always felt very limited as a singer. Like, I was just like, just my entire like life as a musician was just trying to break out and figure out where I was supposed to be. And it was really interesting at that point because, again, I was like, can I just stop performing and focus on composing? And I was told no. I mean, 
It's so interesting that when you can do something, people encouraging you to keep doing it. But sometimes, even though you're good at something, that's not what you're supposed that's to be not doing. What you're supposed to be and doing. And this is a really hard lesson to learn. It's really challenging. So, and and performing music has made me quit music twice because it it because I was just so confused and depressed and frustrated by what I was feeling. I was like, something's not right here and I don't understand it. And again, it took me quitting music again and then teaching music, which I'm also really good at, but then realizing I can't do this for a living. Like I'm gonna be miserable and just drink all the time if all I do is teach music. Yeah. Again, not right. Again, very good at it. What is going on? And then I got back to composing and I'm like, this composing thing is the only thing in music I've done that feels right. I'm now 32. And I have, you know, I have a master's in music education. I have a bachelor's in, in, in jazz performance and composition. I've found a career teaching music. I've also done many other careers. And at 32, I'm like composing. I think this might be a thing. I think I really need to check this out. Discovered media composing, like, like an email popped into my inbox about this one night a week class for composing music for media was starting up again. And I just thought, even though I was massively overcommitted at that time, I was like, I need to check this out. And I went to one night of that. And I was like, I think this is the rest of my life. And I cannot express to you the relief I felt in that moment. Because I just for three decades, I had been trying to figure out where I fit yeah. in music. And I knew I was supposed to be there, but I just didn't fit anywhere. And I found this composing for media thing, and I'm like, this is it. So I kept doing that one night a week class, but I, every other day of the week, I was composing music for picture. I was talking to composers who did it. I was going to networking events. I was buying the software and learning it. I was developing, I was like, I have a lot of the skills already because I've been doing music for three decades, but this is clearly a craft all unto itself. So I need to learn it immediately because I'm 32 and people, you know, go and get a degree in this straight out of high school. So I'm already, you know, a little behind the game here. I need oh, it. Oh, darling, you're talking to I me. Know. We don't worry I about mean, what age we are. <laughs> no, and, and it, was, it was also a lesson in that, you yeah, know, it right. just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you're bringing oh. to your thing everything else that you've learned. So the thing that I've seen time and time again as I've pursued this for the last eight years is that everything I did before this mm. is is in, enriching my skill set. You know, I spent time in administration. I, I, I ran, I helped run a, a renewable energies engineering consulting firm. That administrative background is really helpful <laughs> in working for media because there's so much organization and like, and strategy and everything that goes into, into place when you, when you're working on massive projects and dealing with, you know, bunches of different cues and, and just everything. I mean, there's just a whole administrative aspect to work as a composer. So it's just, that's just one example of, of how every skill set I developed has benefited me once mm. I found this path. There was no wasted time. But I tell you what I'm also hearing, and that is, it, it's very, when you know you're not doing the right thing, and honey, you are singing my tune. Yeah. Um, I was always good at everything that I did. <laughs> Hello, Ella. <laughs> I was moderately okay at everything that I did. Oh, walking that back. Um, but I wasn't fitting in. Yeah. But if I, if, if one 
waits until everything is okay to make that step. Like if you wait for the full picture to appear in front of you, you're going to be waiting a long time. There's that moment. It's, is it Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point? Right. What is it? Right. But it's that moment where you just, I'm trying not to sneeze, so I'm holding my nose. (laughs) It's a great dramatic pause, Mm. though. Thank you. There's that moment where maybe it's a hindsight thing where you say that was the moment, but at the time you don't know what it right. is, but you've got exactly. to keep going. You've got to keep going. And, it, and it's all about this thing of just moving forward and, and having a willingness to course correct and being open to that course correction. Which is what they, all of the motivational speakers that I'm not a big fan of, but they speak about the um, sending the rocket and the rocket, there are computers on, on land that are constantly allowing for atmospheric differences and so yeah. on so that they can slightly change the trajectory of the yeah. rocket, yeah. Um, which I agree with, um, but you don't... At the, there's no book that you can read and, and at the same time put those things into effect. It's almost like the brain can only take in so much information that it's going to use at any one point and it all seems to come down to every cloud has a silver lining this too will pass you know the grandparents <laughs> advice do you know what right, i mean right absolutely yeah i mean for me it's it's it all comes down to doing the work and and i and i you know every step of the way even when I've been going in a direction that I then needed to course correct from. It's like I just I just tried to throw myself into that and get as much out of it. And the skills I learned, you know, like I taught kindergarten music for a while. I hated it. I was moderately okay at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're allowed to say you were fabulous. No, I don't I'm know. I, there are some <laughs> kindergarten music teachers who are so engaged and who are loving every second of it. And I just, I love watching them. And I, I know I never had that. I know I never had that. I was always like, it's too early. They're too short. They're too crazy. You know, like, get me through this. Try and hand over some love of music. But, you know, all those skills... You know, you're always learning, and, and, and if you have an openness to, yes, I know I'm not, I know what I'm doing right now is not exactly what I want to be doing, and I know that I'm searching for something else, but what can I learn from what I'm doing right now? What can I get out of this, you know, and, and, and just kind of being present and embracing while also just keeping your eyes open and your head up and searching for that next, you know, signpost that's going to help you figure out the next step. And I think, you know, the creative life is so challenging. It's so hard to be successful in any creative venture. And also venture. define success. And define success, right? What right, is because it's different things. It's a different thing for everyone. And what, and it's so, that, that's another thing I would I would just love to bring up because because what I plan to do here when I first moved to LA is very different to what I ended up doing. And for me, you know, I want to be a composer. I want to be writing music, for film, video games. That's the goal. And it, that's still definitely the goal. The other thing that a lot of people are told when they're studying film scoring is, you know, there are all these jobs adjacent to film scoring which which pay well, sometimes more than being a composer, and you learn a lot from them. They're orchestrating, 
when you're, which is kind of a widely defined job, but essentially you're working with the composer to, to sweeten or to, you know, add to what they're writing. And, and you may be, like if you're an orchestrator for John Williams, you're not going to be adding a note because he knows every note he wants, but you're just, you're just helping the final project come through. Or if you're orchestrating for someone else who writes a piano sketch and you have to literally orchestrate every other note, that's a lot more involved. But, you know, that's kind of the range of that job. Or you could be copying. You get like someone's fully written a piece and you make the notation work and you extract the parts for each individual player. Or you could be assisting or you could be this or that. The amazing thing about the music world is there's all these great adjacent jobs. Right. It's called support work. But then you're also told, but be careful, because, you know, if you do that work, you might be like pigeonholed and then you'll never be able to be recognized as a real composer. So be careful. And it's Is like this true? fear thing. I think that may have been some people's experience. But what I tell to everyone is, one, it's really hard to make money in music. If someone's going to pay you to be an orchestrator or a copyist or an assistant or a synthestrator or anything, you're getting paid to learn the craft. Mm. You're going to get to look at how other people do their projects. You take that job and you get everything you can out of it. Two, people I orchestrate for are different than my filmmakers who hire me as a composer. And half of them don't even understand what an orchestrator is. They don't right. care. Yeah. They know me as a composer. I do the work to portray myself as a composer. If you look at me on Facebook or Instagram or anything, you will, it will be very clear to you that I'm a composer. Yes. And that's my job. Yeah. You are in control of how the film world perceives you. So you can control whether or not you're pigeonholed. Mm. And three, you need to figure out the kind of life that you want. And what I realized after a few years of living here in LA is I love support work. I'm really good at it. I've been working with Miriam Cutler since seven days after I've officially landed in LA from Seattle. Um, our latest projects were the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, RBG, which I score supervised and orchestrated. Did you really? Yep. And Congratulations. I, thank you. To I, be attached to something like that is amazing. Is amazing. Another great project we did was The Hunting Ground right. that Lady Gaga and Diane Warren wrote yes. the song for, which was nominated for an Oscar. I mean, these projects are amazing. I've learned so much working with Miriam. Love working with her. I love running her team. It's a great collaboration. I'm never going to stop working with her. Now, I have a team of people who work for me so I can do support work for many different composers in town and also have plenty of time for my own composing. So I've created this work persona that is nothing I ever imagined. But the reason I was able to get into it was I didn't listen to the fear mongering and I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted my work life to look like. And looking at all these different models. Uh, there's a great composer, Conrad Pope, who is most well known for his work orchestrating on the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies. And, you know, he does that work as an orchestrator. And then he scores, you know, indie docs and indie films and different projects as well. And he has a, a great musically rich existence. Him and his wife, Nan Schwartz, who's been nominated for multiple Grammys, for doing composing and arranging and everything. But there, when you look at their credits, 
yeah, there's composing, but there's also all this other support work of arranging or orchestrating where you're not in the spotlight. You're not the person. But the thing I realized is I don't want to, I don't need to be the person. Mm -hmm. What I want to do is survive in LA working in film, working on really cool projects. That's that, for me, I've figured out, at least for now, always open to change, but that is my personal definition of success. But it took a lot of work <laughs> well, to figure that out. But isn't that, I mean, that, for, for all the people that I've, that I've spoken to on this podcast, um, one of the things that I've enjoyed hearing is their individual definition of what success is. Yeah. Because it's certainly not, you know, when people would admit, when I first moved here, friends would come and, and stay with me. And, um, and they'd say, do you see any famous people? And I would say, only when I look in the mirror, darling. <laughs> um, oh, I love it. Because when you're in it, that is far less important than anything else. Do you know? Absolutely. And so here's the question I have to ask you. Do you get asked to do things that are no pay but for exposure? I get asked to. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you won't do it. I mean, I, I would rarely do that unless it's, you know, like, like when I, when I hear those requests, I have a number of follow-up questions. I mean, when I work on any project that has low budget, I ask what the overall budget is. And then I ask what the editor was paid, what, what the DP is being paid. You know, if, if everyone is on this project because they love it and no one's getting paid, and I like the project, and I want to work with those people, I might do it. Mm. You know, sounds like fun. Sounds like we could, could create something really cool. Yeah. This whole thing of exposures, I mean, I've had enough short films or feature films go through the, the, you know, the festival circuit and everything. Exposure, I mean, one, you can't promise that to anyone unless you have a functioning crystal ball. Um, and I have not heard of anyone having that in their possession. So it, it's, you know, it, 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 it is something I definitely draw the line at, especially now. I mean, for younger composers, especially if a composer doesn't have a feature film on their IMDb list, if they don't have one, I'm like, you need that first feature. Mm. Like, pay someone. <laughs> pay someone to hire you to do that first feature. Right. That is important. Yes. Like, short films, like, it, it really doesn't matter. Mm. And so try and get paid on those as quickly as possible because the exposure you're going to get from a short film is just, just rarely happens. Yes. Um, but you need the experience of a feature, and a feature credit is very different than a short film credit. So there, you know, there's for me there is always multiple variables I look at when taking on a project. You know, sometimes the project has a budget, but you're like the, you know, you you know immediately the director is going to be miserable to work with. You know, it's going to take twice as long as any other project. You need to seriously consider whether you have the bandwidth to take that on. Yeah. Because sometimes that will be a worse choice than taking on something with little budget, but the director is great and the product is amazing, and you know it, it has people in it that you know are going to do great things with their career because of their presence on screen or because of their work ethic or whatever. Mm. So there's just a million variables, <clears throat> but exposure, psh, you know, it's just. And I think 
I think we've been pushing back enough with that term now that, that, that it's just become the joke that it should be. Oh, and it's still very much there for actors. Yeah, you know. it's just, it's just, it's, it's frustrating, but we, but the, the thing that we always have to, have to consider is that, and I think, I think this is such a challenge for actors, and I think actors have, in some ways, a much harder time than, than people in, in the music or in the post aspect of things, because for us, as I was mentioning, there's, there are a bunch of jobs within music post-production. Um, but with actors, you know, there's acting, unless you want to get into writing or directing or producing. Well, no, and the thing so is, we have to create our own content. You do. So, so there's a lot of pressure on us. Yeah. And it's not, I, if I may, it's not the same as you composing for someone else no. as opposed to you creating your own composition. It's not the same. This is... Um, uh, it's uh, I can't I, I can't even describe it, but it's just it's a really different thing, and it's great because it forces you to learn about writing and creating scenes and excuse me visualizing what that scene is going to look like, and that's great. Um, it show it teaches you about lighting and sound and all of those things. But it can also be really hard yes. to, to to just do it. And and from I find it shh, don't listen. I find it distracting. It takes me away from my work. Yeah. And keeping in mind I'm also writing a screenplay and I'm writing a ten ep uh, series that's designed for Netflix. So the idea of me then going off piste and writing a sketch that we can shoot on an iPhone. Um, just feels funny yeah it's hard and it's hard and you know one thing I think as creatives especially in a town like this that we need to constantly being wing up is how am I going to make money to pay the bills this month to keep me here mm. and that's really important and I tell everyone regardless of what aspect of the industry they're in I'm like just stay here being here is great you get opportunities here nowhere else so even if you have to be an uber driver or you have to wait tables like whatever you do just stay here so you have that job that's paying the bills that may not be work related so you're not getting anything creatively or educationally from it so then you have the rest of your time and that like every second of that time is super valuable so how are you going to spend it and so every project that's coming your way you you have to evaluate you know, it's it's a no paying short, but it's with really good people or they've <coughs> they Excuse have me. done work with other people. So is this worth my time or there's this other project that has some money, but it's going to take a whole lot of time. Is that time worth the money they're paying well, me? The is this going to go nowhere? It's just a constant evaluation, which in and of itself is so exhausting. And time consuming. And it's not that, I mean, for anybody who isn't in the biz or who is in the business thinking, oh, Ella's sounding really up herself, translation, Ella thinks more of herself than she actually is, I think that's the <laughs> translation. Seems that's accurate. not what it means. It's no. like, but it's more like there's only so much you can focus on mm -hmm. and it has to be income producing or career producing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, something that creatively feeds your soul which is really important too because you can get spent 
And the other thing that I talk to a lot of people about is you need to find a way to stay here and not get burnt out and not be miserable. I'm like, if you're here and you're miserable and bitter, you might as well leave because no one's going to want to work with you. No mm -hmm. one's going to want to hire you. You have to be a person that people want to be around. Mm -hmm. That is the first thing in an audition or in a meeting or whatever, even as a composer, you know, we're, when you're working with a composer, you're in post-production, you're exhausted. You know, you already dealt with a million problems in pre-production mm -hmm. and production. So you, like, if you're a difficult person as a composer, the director isn't gonna wanna work with you because they're not even gonna have the bandwidth to deal with a difficult person by that stage. You need to be easy, you need to be like water. You need to come in with no problems and just get the job done. So if you are burnt out, if your life here is killing you, that is gonna affect significantly your chances for success here. And you need to figure out how to creatively and, and spiritually, whatever that means for you, be a, a well person. <laughs> Take Fountain with Ella James. I tell you what I heard from you though, the one of the things that you really excel at, and that is you really tapped into the networking organizations that were going to be able to give you the information yeah. that you needed yeah. and to connect you with the people that you needed. And it almost sounds like it almost sounds like there are really great groups in your field. But I can't help but thinking that there are great groups in all our fields, but you seem to have a secret way of doing this. Yeah. Tell I me mean, your secret. My secret is just showing up and talking to people and really putting yourself out there. And yes, I am an extrovert or a more extroverted person than some, but it's, but if you're going to survive in the arts, you need to part of the work and you need to look at it as work because it is work is you go to things, like for, for, for composers in town, we have the Society of Composers and Lyricists. It's like the main composer group. So you need to go to those events. Not good enough just to go to them. You need to talk to people. Like talk to the people organizing the events. Talk to people afterwards. I know it's hard to talk to strangers, but that's part of the creative life is figuring that out. And what I always tell people is when you talk to someone who's not talking to someone else, you are, even though it feels massively awkward to you to go up and start a conversation, you have to remember you're rescuing that person because that person doesn't have anyone to talk to. So just go and talk to them and, and you don't have to talk about yourself. You go and ask them questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? What are you working on right now? You know, and, and, that, and that's how you build relationships, just being vulnerable and it's scary and putting yourself out there. And so that's, that's what I've done. And people say to you, you make it look so easy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, it, and I, I'm an extrovert. It's still hard for me. Every time I have an event that I have to go out to, there's still part of me that just wants to stay home in my pajamas and mm. watch Netflix or work on my projects. You know, I, I don't want to go out. I have a rule. Once the bra comes off, I'm not going out. <laughs> I know. Right? And it's so hard when so much yeah. of your work it yeah. is sitting up at a chair with your hands yep. forward working, either tapping out a keyboard with yep. letters or playing a keyboard with notes. Um, the first thing you want to do is take off yeah. that thing that's wrapped around your body, exactly. right? But exactly. I know as soon as I do that, there's no way I'm leaving your the house mental again. mental shift. I know. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, I came for the first year, especially I was in LA, I went to every event I could. And it's interesting, I talked to some people and they go to the events that they think they will meet the people they need to move forward. That's a really risky choice. Go to everything because the thing I've learned about being here is that you meet people in the most weird circumstances that end up being the right people to get you the thing. Right. And the thing in this town, too, is like people, the industry is everywhere. So if you like dogs, and if that's a comfortable space for you, then go and volunteer at a pet shelter. I have a friend who like landed a series because he was volunteering at a pet shelter, met a director, they got along really well, they both like dogs. That's why they're both volunteering at a pet shelter. And then he got the gig. Yeah. Just, Just think about what's going to work for you an environment where you can be a little bit more relaxed and go there and do that thing but then also go to all the industry events that are appropriate for your field show Mm -hmm. up i mean everything about the creative arts is showing up either showing up at the networking events or showing up every day at your writing station or at your acting class or you know at your keyboard and doing the work there and there's a lot of showing up you have to do and it's and even then, you may not be successful in this field. Um, do, do you a, a goal setter or a plan maker? So I I love reading um, in, instead of self help books. I love reading like strategy books and organizational books and things like that. And there has been this movement that I love that's away from goals mm-hmm. and towards habits. Mm-hmm. This or another great word that people like to use is rituals. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great book called Daily Rituals, which went through like all different creative people, composers, writers, philosophers, and examined their daily rituals. And the thing I loved about that book was that there was a wide range of rituals from people who we know to be successful, whose work has stood the test of time. So it showed me that, you know, you may not be a morning person, you may have a nightly ritual, but that ritual works for you. But that's something that I've tried to develop. You know, what morning ritual do I need to develop that fits me, that gets me in the right headspace to be creative and productive that day? And then what ways can I fix my workflow so that I can be more creative every time I sit down to work? And, you know, I'm always just kind of putting together and then trying to refine systems that help me be successful in every aspect of of my work and then making sure the people I work with have the same kind of systems. So yeah, it's, it's something I can super nerd out on. Right. Um, books that I've found to be really helpful, um, or blogs, you know, like um, anything that James Clear writes, um, Cal, Cal, uh, is it Cal Anderson? Uh, he wrote two great books, one's called So Good They Can't Ignore You, mm-hmm. um, using that Steve Martin quote. Right. And oh, his other work, uh, his other book is called Deep Work. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. Now he is a, he's a, he he's a professor. He writes papers. I think he works ma- mainly in computer science. So not in the arts at all. But that's why I love reading stuff by those people. Yeah. It's like how can we take those strategies and apply them to the creative arts? And the Deep Work book is especially fascinating for me because he pulls a lot from the 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 studies of. Mahaley, unpronounceable last name, who wrote... Cheek sent me high. Yeah, Flo. thank you. Ta-da! Flo, and he also wrote Creativity, both of which I have on my bookshelf. 
it's just like these books are key. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Knowing how to get yourself in a flow state is so important. And just kind of developing an understanding of how you as a creative being can be most efficient and productive. And and here's the other thing that I'm just so passionate about. And that is, you know, we chose the creative arts, whatever branch we're in, to make a living. And God, like, wouldn't it be awesome if we could actually, like, enjoy <laughs> the work? Right. How do yeah. we enjoy it? And I have talked to so many creative people who wouldn't do anything else, but they're kind of miserable, like on a day-to-day -day basis. They have not found a way to enjoy their work process. Yes, because the process is more than the work. Right. So, so yes, I mean, if I'm on set, that occupies at the moment a, a, a minuscule percentage of my working yep. year, let's say. Yeah. Um, but there's so much more that, that we can do to, that is the work, that is not just the waiting around yeah. or the angsting or the worrying, no, you know. Everything else. And a huge part of what I do, especially with the support aspect, is, you know, a composer brings me onto a project and I say, you know, one thing that me and my team want to do for you is, you know, like, let's have fun. Mm -hmm. You know, let's enjoy this because we're making music. So trying to take the anxiety out of it because they know that, you know, parts are going to be done. Recording session is going to be fine. Musicians that are hired are going to be amazing. You know, the music is going to be proofread. So the recording session will go perfectly. Mm. You know, the, the whole process before that is going to go smoothly because we work well together and we communicate well. You know, all these things, it's the logistical things, but if those things are in place, we could actually have a good time. Yeah. And can we do that? You know, can that actually be something that we pursue as creatives to enjoy crea creating our art instead of having like this angsty, like miserable existence? I think maybe the both have to, have to exist. I, I yes. agree with you. No, no, no. But I can't help but flash back. Many years ago, I was in Paris and I don't know, it must have been a holiday weekend for everybody else because nobody else was there. <laughs> and I wound up going to Victor Hugo's house and I was the only one there. And, and the woman took my ticket and, and said, you know, just go upstairs, wander through. Um, or just go upstairs, wander through. And, and, and I was like, oh, okay. Amazing. So I went up this tiny little staircase. And I looked in this tiny little room with a very low doorway. And then I went up to the top. And there is this desk by a window. Um, and, and I think she told me this is where he wrote uh, Les Miserables. And I just, I just took it all in. And I thought, and all of that, part of his angst was part of that process. Like it was necessary to part of the process. And then there was all of the beauty that was part of it as well. So I don't, I, I mean, I, I think there's a place for, for the whole spectrum. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, pre, like, am I, I'm not happy, I'm, I'm not a constantly happy person by any extent. And I think, you know, especially with the work we do, it, it, it can be heartbreaking when you write something that you love and then you send it off to the director and they hate it or they just like want to go in a completely different direction. How do you and, handle that? Well, you just, you know, you have to let go. And the upside is if you write something you love and they hate it, well, 
is yours. You just keep it. Just keep it. So that's my last, qu one of my last questions to you is this, because I don't take up too much of your time and this is fabulous. So when I, so I might be walking down the street and I hear a, some dialogue and I think, oh, I've got to keep that. And I will take out my phone and I will write that down because the exchange was just too good to lose. And I don't know where I'm going to use it, sure. but I know I'll use it somewhere. So do you create music like that and keep it in a little file on your computer? Yeah, I definitely try and sing things in. Or I mean, Evernote is, is what I live and die by. Because really? Evernote works musically? Oh, yeah. It has okay. a microphone. Okay. Or you can attach, you know. Yeah. You can, if I, if I write things, like often if I'm, if I don't want to sing something in, I'll write, um, by, you know, by assigning uh, numbers to notes. Mm. So it'd be like five, one, one, two. Mm-hmm. Five, one, one, two, three, one, two, five, you know. So oh, it's wow. just like if I just write it out, um, then then I'll, then I'll know what I'll, hopefully, what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> just like me driving down the 405 and holding on to Siri and scream, create note. And then I start screaming and then I get home and I look at it and it goes, gersh no Bang, bang, bang. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't think of what I meant. And it was so fabulous. <laughs> That's amazing. That's why, like, recording audio is great, right? Because it's I'll like, sing it in future. Yeah, exactly, yeah. just sing it in. But, oh, um, this has been so wonderful. I can't thank you enough for your time. I'm in awe of <laughs> – I was in awe of what you do, but now I'm in awe of your process and – and I just, I wish you all the best and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. After I left Catherine's house, I decided I thought it might be nice for you to hear some of her music. So I got in touch and she very kindly has shared with me a piece that she wrote for a proof of concept short called Salt Water. And here it is. Music by Catherine Joy. <laughs>